Thank you so much for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in six different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about Our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Have you ever wondered how wonderfully intelligent, educated, smart people can make some of the stupidest decisions in the world? And have you ever noticed that there are sometimes people that are simple and uneducated that make the wise and best decisions? How, how does that happen? I mean, how, how can intelligent people make stupid decisions and very simple people make very wise decisions? Well, it's not really very hard. You see, when you and I become a born-again child of God, the moment that you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior and you died to the old you at the cross and the new you was spiritually raised from the dead, let me tell you what changed. Christ came to live inside you. Are you grateful for that? Your sins were forgiven. Are you grateful for that? Okay, and God begins through the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to change you from the inside out. How many of you, when you were born again, it took a while for some of the outside things to change? Okay, let me say this. As a church, this isn't a palace for perfect people. This is a hospital for hurting people that are still working on getting it all together. <laughs> However, this is the medicine, and I'm not going to water it down because that won't help you get better. That won't help you get better. And so... When you look at how people make decisions and why they make decisions, they base it upon their world view. Say that, my world view. And when I become born again, I spiritually come alive. My sins are forgiven. Christ through the Holy Spirit is living inside of me. But there's a lot of hurts, habits, and hangups that have programmed my whole life. I'm always aware of that when a new Christian comes to our church and they'll walk up to me after a sermon and go, Pastor, you preached a blankety blank of a sermon today. And they don't say blank. And I go, well, well th <laughs> thank you. Th th thank you very much. Because I know that what they said, okay, was not a reflection of what was in their heart. It was just an old habit pattern they've been stuck in for a long, long time. Is everybody with me? Okay, that is their world view. It's the way they've always done things. It's the way they think about things. As a matter of fact, some of you, when you became born again, had to realize that everybody was made in the image of God, not just people your skin color. And so to prove that, you chose a Mexican pastor. Muchas gracias. But the reality is, that is your world view. Your world view is your perspective on life. It's how you see money, sexuality, time, even good and evil. We ultimately make all of our decisions based upon our world view. And when you were born again, your world view wasn't transformed. Your spirit was transformed. And now you need to begin to renew your mind and go from your world view to the word's view. Is that okay? 
In a recent survey, 62% of Americans said they thought they were deeply spiritual. And they were asked these questions. How does your spirituality affect your decision-making? Listen to what they said. 31% of them said, I make moral decisions on what I feel is right and comfortable for me. 18% said, I make moral decisions based on what's best for me. 14% said, I make my moral choices on whatever causes the least conflict with people around me. Only 16% said, I make my moral decisions on what God's Word says. On what God's Word says. Let me give you just a few of the most popular worldviews of our day. Here's the first one, materialism. Materialism says what matters most is money and possessions. You might think that's new. It's not. During the Bible times when Jesus was speaking, there was a God that people would go and sacrifice to so they would become wealthy. Do you know what the name of that God was? How many of you know the name of that God? Starts with an M. Mammon. And Jesus said, you can't serve God and what was he saying? He was saying, there's some of you all your life, you thought if I could just have more possessions and more wealth, I would, and so they would go and serve this God, mammon. So Jesus was saying to them, you can't serve God and mammon. You have to make a decision. Mammon says this, materialism says this, life is about the acquisition of things. The person who has the most things will be the happiest. In the 80s and 90s, there was a bumper sticker that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Somebody else put another bumper sticker on the back of their car and it said, whoever dies with the most toys still dies. So for you and me, there is Jesus's view, the Word's view. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. He said this, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of what? In other words, he's saying your valuables don't determine your value and your net worth is not your self-worth. Here's the second view that's very popular today. I would say this is the primary worldview people have today and it's called hedonism. Say that with me, hedonism. Let me explain it to you because maybe you're not familiar with the term. Hedonism is a worldview that says whatever feels good is good. In hedonism, pleasure is God. Man lives to please himself, and whatever pleases him is God. Food, sexuality, alcohol, their favorite hobby. They actually live for pleasure. If your number one goal is to make life comfortable and for you to be at pleasure, you're a hedonist. If your number one goal more than anything is to be happy, you're a hedonist. In Proverbs 21, the wealthiest man that ever lived and the wisest man that ever lived next to Jesus said this. His name was Solomon. Are you addicted to thrills? Read it with me. What a empty life. The pursuit of pleasure is what? It's never satisfied. How many of you remember when you were a little kid and you used to go through the bank and they used to give you those suckers? How many of you remember that? And, and, and when you were a little kid, all you wanted was a sucker. That would make you happy. Then you got to be a teenager and you discovered the opposite sex. And then you thought, that will make me happy. And then you turned 20 
and 30. And then you went, I must be a success. Dress for success. Think and be rich. Be your own boss. Are you tired of working for everyone else? Sell Amway. And then you get in your 40s and your 50s, and now you want security. You want to make sure that your 401k is where it needs to be when you get ready to retire. How many of you used to have a 401k before the crash? Now you got a 402z. And then when you get 70, 60, 70, and 80, hey, you just want survival. You're not really concerned about suckers or all the other S's. You just want to know that you wake up in the morning and don't see your picture in the paper in the obituaries. That is the world around you. It is all for all of us. It's constantly saying to us, you need to live to please yourself. Here's the next thing. Individualism. In materialism, money is God. In hedonism, pleasure is God. But in the individualism, I am God. Individualism says, I'm first. I'm looking out for number one. If I don't look out for myself, who will? And advertisers have placated to this. Have it your way. We do it all for you. You deserve a break today. Think about yourself. It's all about you. Obey your thirst. God never created you to live for yourself. And that's why the most selfish people are always the most miserable people. The most miserable people. The Christian worldview says this in Proverbs 18.1. Read it with me. It is, and it is to only think about yourself. Christianity begins with self-denial. Listen to what Jesus says to his followers who are excited about miracles and him walking on water and raising the dead. He gives them some perspective. And listen to what he says. If anyone desires to come after me, let him, what's the first thing? Say it loud. Deny himself. You can't be a hedonist and follow Jesus. You can't be living for pleasure and follow Jesus. Why? Because you're following you and your own lustful desires and your own pleasure desires. He says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and then what? Take up his cross and then Why is it that progression? Because until you deny yourself at the cross to see how he denied himself for you, you're too busy following yourself. You cannot follow him. You cannot follow him. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. And by the way, Jesus says, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world, pleasure, material possessions? You become your own God and lose your own soul. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus once was with his disciples, and they were walking into an important event. When they got to the house, outside was a servant the lowliest of servants, his job was to wash people's feet. And of course, the roads were dusty and everybody had sandals. So you'd slowly, methodically take off your sandals and they would sit down and then they would wash your feet, dry your feet, and you would go into the meeting. Except this time when they got to the front door, Jesus pushed the servant aside. He grabbed the towel, he grabbed the water, and he knelt down and said to the disciples, come on. Peter, 
The disciple with the foot-shaped mouth jumped up and said, Jesus, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. You, you are a Lord and master and you're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, okay, Peter, then if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. And Peter goes, whoa, 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 time out. Give me a shower. And Jesus said, it's not necessary just for me to wash. Shut up and do what I tell you. Which is, by the way, what God says to most of us. Just shut up and do what I tell you. And he began washing the disciples' feet. And then he got up and said this, if I being your Lord and master have served you and washed your feet, listen to what he says in John 13, 17. Here's what he says right after that. If you know these things, if you serve others, happy are you if you, what? Do you know the happiest people we know are? The most selfless people we know. The most selfless people. Jesus said, whoever is the least is the greatest. Okay? Whoever serves is the greatest. Do you know who the greatest person is in most families, if all the families there? Be honest with you. Who is it? It's mama. Who gets up in the night if somebody's crying? Who cooks dinner even if she's exhausted? I mean, you could just go through the whole list of things. And it's been said that when men are in war and men are dying, do you know what their last words are? Do you know who they're calling for? Mama. Why? Because they are the greatest servants. Happiness is a byproduct of living the way that God designs you to live by loving Him and serving others. Here's the fourth worldview. It's called collectivism, or we call it socialism. Collectivism says government is God. It basically says that we should look to government for everything and that it should control everything. There's nothing wrong with government. God's actually the one that created it. In order to govern millions of people that were the children of Israel, God told Moses to his father-in-law Jethro, go select men of honor, put them captains over thousands, captains over, and he actually instituted the first government. There's nothing wrong with government. Government is a good thing. It was invented by God. There are three institutions of government God made, the family, the church, and then the established government. Even though he invented government, what happens is, is that people that don't know God, instead of looking to God, begin to look to, and then the government becomes God. What is a biblical purpose of government? To protect our freedom, to ensure justice, and to preserve peace. Jesus explained the limited role of government when they were having to pay taxes. Someone came to Jesus thinking they would trap him since he was preaching in an area that was under Rome control. And they said, Jesus, Jesus, should we pay taxes? And Jesus said, give me a coin. And they gave him a coin. And he said, whose picture's on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. What was Jesus saying? Whose image are you created in? That's what he was saying. And what's the answer to that? Then give to God what's God's. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. How do I do that? I do that by, I owe my respect to our elected officials. I owe my taxes. Matter of fact, they're going to take them whether I want to pay them or not. Three, I'm responsible to keep the law and be kind to my neighbor. But what belongs to God? Everything. 
My life is not my own. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Corinthians 6.20 says this, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Well, what is the Word's view, Pastor? What is, what is the way that we are supposed to see the world? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, Beloved friends, what should be our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? I encourage you to surrender yourself to who? To God, to be His sacred living sacrifices and live in holiness, experiencing all that delights God's heart. For this becomes your genuine expression of worship. Stop imitating the ideas and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. Then you will be empowered to discern God's will as you live a beautiful and satisfying life in His eyes. Ephesians 4.22 says this, Strip yourselves of your own former nature and put off and discard the old unrenewed self which characterizes your previous manner of life and corrupts through lust and desires that spring from a delusion and be constantly renewed in the spirit of your mind having a fresh mental attitude. So what is a biblical world view or the words view? In a biblical worldview, when I get ready to make a decision, the first thing that I say is, what does God's word say? What does God's word say? Why do I ask this question? Why do I say, what does God's word say? Matthew 24, 35 says, heaven and earth will pass away but by no means will God's words pass away. Deuteronomy 6, 24 and 25 says, and the Lord commanded us to observe his statutes to fear our God for our good always. And by the way, we are going to stand before the God of this word and give account for every action and word of our lives. One guy told a friend of mine one time, he said, well, why should we obey God? Why don't we obey somebody else? And my friend said, well, like, for instance, who? He said, well, how about me? And my friend looked at him and said, first of all, you're not smart enough. Second of all, you're too stupid. And third of all, you didn't make us, he did. We have been made by God. And so his word must be his infallible, eternal word. Now let's get to the practice of it. Today, views of the world versus views of the word. Here's the first one, the sanctity of life. Say that with me, the sanctity of life. The world's view is it's a private choice made between a woman, not in her husband, and her doctor. That's the line. Made between a woman and her doctor. It's a private choice to decide the outcome of her unborn fetus. Can I tell you something? I am amazed at scientists that will spend billions of dollars to go millions of miles into outer planets and Mars and the other places to see if there's life, but they refuse to go six inches into the womb of a woman to see real life. 
The Word's view is at the moment of conception, it's not just a fetus, it's a human. Not only created in the image of its mom and daddy, it is created in the image of the living God. Created in the image of the living God. Psalms 139 verse 13, record this. Take a picture of it. Listen to what it says. Oh yes, you shaped me first inside and then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God. You're breathtaking, body and soul. I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something like an open book. You watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you and the days of my life are all prepared before I'd even lived one day. In the Word's view, it's not a choice, it's a child. In the Word's view, it's not a liberty, it's a life. In the Word's view, 40 million babies have been aborted in our nation since 1973. That's almost 15% of our entire population. Let me ask you a question. If we invaded a nation and wiped out 40 million people, would somebody be guilty? How much longer will God tolerate this? How much longer? And maybe, maybe you've made this mistake, this sin. Maybe you have. Can, can I, I want to say this to you because it's unfair to tell you that without telling you this part. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to forgive you. And then receive his forgiveness by grace. God doesn't forgive some sin. He forgives all sin. And here's the third thing. Know that one day you'll be reunited with that precious child, just like I will with our 20-year-old Wesley. One day, we'll be reunited. Here's the second one, the sanctity of sex. Here's the world's view. It's a private and personal matter. An adult should be able to be involved with whomever they choose as long as there are those that are willing, compliant, and able. And then there's the word's view. Let's remember who created man and who created the act of intimacy. It was God himself. The Bible teaches us very clearly that when two are involved together, they become one. I just read a scientific study six months ago that said they've discovered that when a man and woman are involved together, there's a bonding chemical that's released in their body. If they keep on, they might even discover the truth of God's word soon. The Word's view says this, let marriage be held in honor, esteemed worthy and precious of great price, especially dear in all things. And thus let marriage, the marriage bed, be undefiled, kept undishonored, for God will judge and punish unchaste and all guilty of sexual vice and the adulteress. L look at me. Sexual immorality outside of the bonds of marriage, sex outside of marriage is a sin. It is. I love you. And there may be many people here involved in it. There's been times when my own family members have been involved, but it's still sin and still wrong and it still hurts people and God. Is this okay? Listen carefully to me. This book is going to judge us one day. And when you stand before God, God's going to rewind this whole movie. 
And Pastor Jacob's going to be preaching. And you're going to be sitting there. And Jesus said, on that last day, I will not judge you, but the words you have spoken will judge you. Let me explain that. How many have ever done something stupid? Raise your hand. How many have ever done something sinful? Raise your hand. How many of you did sinful and stupid things repeatedly? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you, when you were doing it, you thought it was kind of okay? Okay. How many of you criticized other people, though, for doing the same thing you did? You know what? Let me, let me tell you what, what, what that means. That means that one day you're going to say, well, God, I didn't know that was wrong. And God's going to say, really? And he's going to replay the movie. You're going to go, look at Sonia Boudreaux. She's stupid. I can't even believe she's running around like that. And God's going to say, I don't have to judge you. Your own words judged you. Your own words judged you. The sanctity of marriage. The world's view is it doesn't matter if you're in love with each other. Love is all that matters. I want you to look right here. My daddy was married five times following that same lie. My mom was married two times to a man that was married seven times following that same lie. Remember, we're talking about building on what will never, ever change. We're talking about heaven and earth passing away. We're talking about a word that a world that every day something changes, but we get to build on something that's lasting and eternal that will never, ever change both now and in eternity. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and part of his side and closed it up the place in the flesh. And the rib from the side the Lord God had taken from the man he built up and made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this creature is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined and united and cleaving to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. The Jews have 5,000 years of history. The Chinese have 3,000 years of history. And it has only been in the last 10 years that for the first time in all known humanity that the definition of marriage has been altered from the very person who created man and the very institution of marriage. God's word is very clear. And when the government steps in, what they attempt to do is to take what belongs to God and give it to Caesar. Leviticus 18.22 says, you shall not lie with the man as with the woman. It's an abomination. 1 Corinthians 16.9 says, do you not know that the unrighteous and wrongdoers shall not inherit any share in the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived or misled. Neither the impure, the immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, or homosexuals. But listen to me. Many of these people who practice and people are in our church some are in my own family, distant family. And I want to say again, this church is not a palace for perfection. It is a hospital for the hurting. But this alone is the medicine along with the Spirit of God. And it must be preached with power and anointing for it to change people's lives. 
There is a war on life. It began with evolution when they removed the creator of life. Then with the definition of life in Roe versus Wade in 1973. And then with the dissolution of marriage and the institution that procreated life. And now you know what the final battle is? Here's the final battle. Euthanasia. Which is people deciding, I don't want to live anymore, so give me medication so I can take my own life. It's a war on life. Why? Because life created by God is a reflection of God. And the Bible says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Pastor, how can I build a world view built on the Word? Last two minutes, let me tell you how. Number one, accept God's Word as my final authority. Accept God's Word as my final authority. Do you know how many people come to me and they go, Pastor, um, my cousin from Delcom said that if I had been married before, and um, that person, we didn't get along and I deserve to be happy, then God says I can divorce them and just marry somebody that makes me happy. I go, who said that? My cousin from Delcom? Okay, so let me get this right. You're going to take 5,000 years of an unchanging, unwavering, unalterable truth and listen to your cousin who graduated from Delcom High School. Here's the truth. Look right here. If I don't accept God's word as the final authority, I end up accepting mine or somebody else's. That's what happens. Accept God's word as my final authority. Secondly, spend time with God and his word to continue to align my will and my habits with his word. Third, if I have areas where I oppose God's word, I need to repent. I need to ask God to forgive me and I need to change and align myself with God's word. Let me ask you a question. How many of you ever bought a new car? Raise your hand. How many of your first car was a new car? Raise your hand. Okay. I hate you in a Jesus kind of way. Look, when you get a new car, you can reach over there in the glove box and what's in the glove box? The manual. And you open up the manual. Okay. If you look at that manual and it goes gas, only put premium gas. And you look and go, huh. They trying to trick me. I could put water in there. They want me to pay $4 when I can get it for free. You look to it and it goes, change the oil every 2,000 miles. That's a racket from the oil companies. I'm not changing it till the blight starts blinking. Another one says, change your tires when they get less than a 16th or two 16ths of an inch. You could put a penny in and they go, ha, ah, that's good. You're in Michelin trying to create a racket. Look right here. How long is that car going to run? How well is it going to run? Then why in the world would you give Volkswagen, Mercedes, or Chevrolet more credit than you do the living God who gave you the manual for your life? <laughs> Accept God's word and repent of the way. And then stand with God and his word. Many years ago, 
over 100 years ago, there was a, a, a large ship with many sailors on it. And it got caught up in a horrific storm in the sea. The storm was so great that they could not see literally for days. It was like we would have one of those hurricanes just on us for an extended time. They struck something in the night and no one could see and people were jumping out and there was screaming and people were grabbing preservers and people were grabbing the lifeboats. When the storm subsided within a couple of days, a rescue ship was sent to that area. They found people scattered every direction you could, holding on to something, and they found many that had been lost at sea and perished. But they came upon one man, and they discovered then what the problem was, that they were thrown up on an island. The boat was, and it hit a large rock, and it broke the ship, and it, that's when it sank, and everything began to fall apart. And they found one man and he had a death grip on this big rock and all the green algae around it. And he had his legs wrapped around it and he had his hands wrapped around it. And when they came to rescue him, they almost had to pry him loose. And they said, sailor, what happened? He said, there was a great storm. Told him everything I just told you. He said, everybody was screaming and crying, looking for something that would float. And I felt this rock. And when I felt this rock, I latched a hold. They said, what happened? He said, the waves kept coming. The wind kept coming. The storm kept blowing, but the rock didn't move. It didn't move. And in this world where everything is changing, we have a rock, a shelter, a fortress, a foundation that heaven and earth will pass away. But this book will never, ever, 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 ever. You can count on it. You can quote it. You can stand on it. Abraham did. Adam did. And you can. It's God's unchanging word. And it is the only way to look at the world we live in. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the precious people that are here. Thank you for those who are hungry. That's why they're here. Lord, I pray that today that the power of your word, your word says by mercy and truth, sin is removed from our lives, that you love us so much that you don't leave us the way we are. And at the same time, you love us enough to come right where we are to meet us. So I pray for every person here. I pray in the name of Jesus that we too, like that sailor, would embrace that which will not shake and will not move. That unalterable, never changing, infallible, God-breathed Word of God. Thanks again for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about Our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com.